0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW avoid. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: Steve, we've got a new Patreon supporter. So before we get started tonight, let's give a heartfelt thank you to all the wonderful fans out there who have been paying our podcast fees, our website fees, our research site subscriptions, not to mention our equipment. So a big thank you to our new Patreon supporter, Heidi, as well as our long-term supporters, Bradley, Carrie, Dolores, Harry, Jana, Jane, Justin, Laura, Linda, Lisa, Mary Beth, Michael, Mickey, Molly, Sarah, Vicky, Wendy, Tom, Sue, and Barb.
0: I feel like romper room there for a minute, waiting for you to call my name out.
1: Always do. <laughs> hey, you know what? We owe a big thank you to you two. People have no idea what you go through to make this happen.
0: Oh ditto for you as well. You do a lot of hard work. How about a little music, Paula?
1: Let's have it.
0: Nothing but a
2: ghost Trapped in these halls You always felt like You were never alone I can't hold you at night That's my biggest regret
0: Terms with it. hello listeners and welcome to ohio mysteries you're listening to a clip of when it's over by drifting thing from hubbard ohio drifting thing is our featured ohio music artist tonight so stick around to the end of the podcast we're going to tell you a little bit more about them and let you hear the rest of that song but right now let's throw another log on the fire campers I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal.
1: Hi, everyone. So, listen, you might hear some birds chirping in the background because Steve and I have had to get very creative with our podcast setup. He is in a very high-risk essential job, being a public bus driver, and I live with somebody who is at very high risk medically, and so... Uh, He's sitting outside my window right now.
0: (laughs) Social distancing.
1: (laughs) And we have glass between us, and I'm sitting inside.
0: We'll put pictures up.
1: We'll put pictures up. So anyway, I hope everybody out there is is being safe and doing what you can not to spread this virus. But anyway, Steve, uh, when when I get started, uh, you can uh, turn down the gain, and maybe we'll uh, improve the audio a little bit. But first... You're going to love this one, Steve, because when we first started podcasting, you wanted me to find some good gangster mysteries. You remember that? Absolutely. Well, you know, organized crime has been part of Ohio's history for more than a century. So it's probably not surprising to learn that some of Ohio's unsolved murders are the stuff of mob activity. Tonight's episode is about one of them, a gruesome hit that newspapers refer to as the dynamite murder. So let me take you back to May 12, 1952, in Wyandotte County, and it's Jackson Township. That's in Northwest Ohio, about 14 miles outside Upper Sandusky. Farmer Elmer Weiss lived in a remote, woodsy area of the county. So woodsy, the nearest village is actually called Forest. Oak timber was big business here. That Monday, Farmer Weiss was taking his trash into the woods near his home. I guess back in 1952, if you lived on a big farm, the woods were as good as any place to get rid of your rubbish. But on this day, he spotted a piece of refuse that definitely wasn't his. A human foot. Weiss didn't bother to look any further. He ran back home and called Wyandotte Sheriff Ben Stansbury. The sheriff and his deputies arrived quickly discovering there was more than just a foot in those woods. There was an entire human body that apparently had been blown apart by a stick of dynamite. Ground zero was a depression beneath an oak tree, lined with a layer of flesh and bone. The blast had thrown other pieces of the body as far as 200 feet from the center. Police collected the larger pieces, two legs severed above the knees, Two arms severed at the elbows, five pieces that made up the torso, and a head, flattened until it was only about three inches thick. They couldn't get it all. They left behind a gruesome sight, bits of flesh and bone clinging to bushes, tree trunks, and stuck to the roof and walls of a pair of small hog houses 50 feet away. Weiss told police he did hear a sharp blast at 9.30 p.m. the previous Thursday. A couple of other neighbors told police they'd heard the same. The farmer who lived to the north of the Weiss farm said he saw a single car go into the woods shortly before the blast, though he didn't linger long enough to see it come back out. But neither man paid too much attention to it. You see, there was a stone quarry not far away where blasting was common and the sound often carried to their area. Although, in hindsight, Weiss said, the blast he heard Thursday did seem different than the others had heard. Sheriff Stansberry was now wondering if this detonated body was connected to something else that happened just three days earlier. On Saturday, just after midnight, outside the village of Nevada, Ohio, that's about 20 miles from the blast site, A man driving a lonely stretch of road saw a car on fire, a 1949 dark green Ford two-door sedan. He drove to the nearest farmhouse and called the sheriff. The fire department put out the fire, and the car was towed to a local wrecking yard. The sheriff was immediately suspicious about this vehicle. It had no license plates, and someone had attempted to remove all marks of identification. Serial numbers had been obliterated with a blowtorch, but they didn't get them all. There was a number hidden on the frame that they missed, and that led to Toledo and a report of a stolen car back on March 7. There were tire tracks at the scene of the blast, and forensic investigators from the state's BCI were called in to make casts to see if it matched what remained of the tires on the burned-out car in Nevada. As for the body parts, the larger pieces were sent to Ohio State University to be examined by pathologist Dr. Emmerich Von Ham. Von Ham said the victim was a man between 25 and 40 years old with brown hair, weighing about 200 pounds on a short and stocky frame. He was well-groomed, his hair cut short, and his nails manicured. The killer had stripped the man of all clothing but a t-shirt and underwear. The tips of the victim's fingers had been shaved off, an obvious attempt to prevent identification by fingerprint. The cause of death was a bullet to the head. The bullet was not recovered. Authorities concluded that the victim was killed somewhere outside the immediate Wyandotte County area and driven to the woods along County Road 64, it was anyone's guess as to whether the killer knew the woods or just found the lane that ran off 64 and thought it a convenient stop. The body had been removed from the car that was transporting it, placed on the ground, and a stick of dynamite laid on the torso and ignited. Well, the FBI joined the case, too, and authorities said it sure looked like a gangland killing an organized crime group reaping vengeance on an unwanted man. But then again, gangland killers were seldom so dramatic. Why go so far as to dynamite the body? Detectives said they thought that was a sign, that the killer was afraid that the mere act of identifying the victim could lead back to them. And that's exactly what happened Because four days after they found that body, they had an ID and they had two suspects in custody. The victim turned out to be Carl Quinnum. He was 38 and operated a filling station in Maple Heights, a business in which he used the name Carl Stone. Even though Stone's fingertips were shaved with a dull knife, the BCI was able to read fragments of his fingerprints. And in a stroke of luck... The prints were on file. They had been taken when Stone was arrested just three months earlier for passing a bad check in Cleveland. It's the only record he had. Stone was married. He and his wife, Vera, and their two-year-old daughter, Sue Ann, had been living at Bob's trailer camp in Aurora. But two days before Stone was killed, they had been evicted because of Stone's drinking and some other habits. Vera is the reason they decided to compare Stone's prints to the dead man in the first place. She told police that on May 8, the day the victim was killed, she received a call from a man who refused to give his name, but said her husband had been arrested and would be in jail for five or six days. After a few days, she called police to find out where her husband was, and that led to their suspicions that the dead man might have been Stone. Once Stone's identity was confirmed, authorities quickly zeroed in on two men, Albert Lauerhaas, 38 years old, and Joseph Horay, 42, both of Cleveland. Lauerhaas and Horay were new business associates of Stone. The three of them were going into the used car business together. But there was also tension. In this new endeavor, Stone had acquired land near his filling station to serve as the used car lot, and Lauerhaus had made signs and a shanty to use as the office. But Lauerhaus wanted paid for his efforts. Apparently, Stone thought otherwise. But as detectives worked the case, they learned there was much more to this new business. The three men were going to fill their used car lot with stolen cars. Here's how it would work. They would acquire new cars that had been wrecked, giving them possession of the title. Then they would go out and find another car of the same make and model and steal it and replace the serial numbers on the stolen car with those taken from the wrecked cars so the cars would appear legitimate. Stone might have only had that one bad check incident on his record, but his two accomplices were experienced crooks ex-convicts with lengthy police records. Larhas and Horry went to jail for attempted robbery in Sandusky in 1948 and served two years together as cellmates at the Ohio Penitentiary. They were released in 1951, but four months later, they were hauled back in for questioning in the case of the bombing of a Brecksville home owned by solicitor Joseph Zelansny. They didn't get charged in that bombing, but Lauerhaus was caught driving a stolen car that very day. So now, in the case of the dynamite bombing, when Cleveland police seized Lauerhaus and Horry at their Westside homes and turned them over to the Wyandotte County Sheriff, Lauerhaus was under a $5,000 bond awaiting trial in that stolen car case from the year before. This is going to be important, so remember that. Lauerhaus, by the way, had two brothers on the Cleveland police force. One was a sergeant, the other a patrolman who was so ashamed of his brother, he had his last name legally changed. Anyway, Wyandotte detectives could not get Lauerhaus or Horry to crack on the dynamite murder case, even after hours of interrogation. These were hardened criminals who knew how it worked, and in the end, they had to let them go. That didn't stop authorities from sharing their theory, though. The motive for the murder might have been related to Laura Haas's arrest in the case of that stolen car the previous year. Now, Marion County Sheriff Leroy Ritterer said that kind of attention probably really threw a wrench in the plans of the three men to operate a used car lot stocked with stolen cars. So now let's go to May 8th. That's the day Stone was killed. Lauerhaus was supposed to be in Marion County to prepare for his appearance in court for that auto theft of a year ago. What if Horry and Stone had accompanied him? What if the trio was sticking together throughout this process because they didn't fully trust each other? What if Lauerhaus and Horry, who were buddies and old cellmates, decided they didn't know their new associate Stone very well at all? and that he might crack if, say, police or a grand jury decided to start asking him questions about their association. And maybe that's when they decided to silence him. They could have put a bullet in his head, then drove him to those secluded woods in nearby Wyandotte to try and destroy the body. Then take the 1949 Ford that Stone was driving, try to erase the serial numbers on it, and set it on fire. It was a good story, a good theory, but there was no hard evidence to back any of it up. And on May 19, police had no choice but to release the men. Now, Lauerhaus was not off the hook in the case of that auto theft charge of a year ago. At his court hearing in that case, Lauerhaus pleaded guilty to that charge, but his sentencing was delayed six months, and here's why. Because behind the scenes, authorities hoped they could offer Lauerhaus a deal for turning evidence on the larger crime ring that he belonged to. The judge knew about the effort to get Lauerhaus to talk, not only about the Stone murder, but other murders, other bombings, and counterfeiting. So the judge gave them all six months to work it out. Lauer Haas kept his appointments with police during that time, but he didn't reveal anything significant. He was also brought in for three polygraph tests in which more than a dozen representatives from various law enforcement agencies watched from behind a two-way mirror as he was asked questions about cases in their areas. The test showed he lied throughout the entire process. On January 7th of 1953, the judge decided they had played his game long enough. He sentenced Lauerhaas for 1 to 20 years on the auto theft charge and expressed disappointment that Lauerhaas wasn't being as cooperative as he had promised. Lauerhaas said he could survive prison. He couldn't survive being a snitch. He was taken directly from the courthouse to the Ohio Penitentiary in Columbus. To this date, nobody has been charged in the murder of Kurt Stone. I followed the careers of Lauer Haas, and Horry after this affair, at least as far as I could find in newspaper reports. Horry might have been the bigger thug of the two of them. For a time, Cleveland named him the city's public enemy number one, and they referred to him as the dynamiter. A year after Lauer Haas went to jail, Horay was arrested as part of a jewelry theft gang that had pinched the equivalent of $200,000 in stolen goods from local businesses. He served time in Indianapolis for a loan company robbery that involved the shooting of a policeman, and he was sentenced to six years in federal prison for selling narcotics. Here's an interesting note. In one of Horre's trials, so many people were afraid of being on his jury that only 17 of 75 people summoned for jury duty showed up. The judge had to use a 1905 law that allowed police to round up jurors from the street and force them onto the panel. Ultimately, things didn't end well for Horre. In 1964, he was found dead at the Bird Cage Lounge in Parma Heights, with a gunshot wound to the head. Early reports called it a potential suicide, but detectives eventually learned Horry had been shot by Paul Bruno, a nightclub singer who was reportedly once a protege of Frank Sinatra. Bruno said the shooting was accidental, that the gun went off as they were struggling for it. He was given a life sentence. Lauer Haas also didn't learn from his experience. Apparently, he served far less than the possible 20 years he was given in that auto theft case because in 1960, he was convicted again for being part of an interstate auto theft ring. He got seven years that time. I don't know what happened after that, but I did find his obituary. He made it all the way to 2007 when he died at the ripe old age of 93. Anyway, Steve, let's bring on an armchair detective to talk about this case. I know it's very complicated, but this armchair detective has a very personal connection to this case. Judy
2: was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered com. It's
1: my
3: little escape.
2: Now Judy's the life of the party.
3: Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
2: Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs) The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes.
0: ChumpaCasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary, Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you.
1: Well, joining us tonight is a repeat armchair detective, Ashley Payton of Upper Sandusky, not Cedar Point. Hi, Ashley. (laughs) Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Steve is waving hi. Steve uh, is on the opposite side of a, a glass door here because he's in a high-risk job for the virus, and I live with somebody who is at high risk of getting it. So he's uh, he's waving to you. He, he can't, You can't hear him, though. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, Ashley, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I live in Upper Sandusky, and I am a past Historical Society Director for Wyandot County, but I also have a haunted history tours that I do around the community, in our spare time to kind of keep history alive for those that are in our community.
1: Well, that's wonderful. And you were on our episode about the Athens Lunatic Asylum. Yes. Yeah, that was a good one. That
3: was fun.
1: And actually, you suggested that one and you suggested this episode, but I know that you didn't know a lot of the details about this. Why don't you tell us why you suggested this and what you knew.
3: Yes. One of the stories I tell during my haunted history tours is about a man that had dynamite shoved in his mouth and blown up. I didn't have many more details than that. Growing up, it was a story that was told a ton at family functions because Elmer was my grandfather's good friend.
2: Elmer the farmer.
3: Yes. Elmer the farmer. (laughs) His field kind of butted up towards my grandfather's field. So it was always a big, dramatic story that they like to share at family functions because once the police and everybody was done investigating, Elmer called my grandpa over, and they literally got pails and buckets and went out in the fields and picked up body parts.
1: Oh, my God.
3: They were always very dramatic, and they would say how they had it literally hanging from the trees. So they were pulling flesh out of the trees to try to clear up the area. So that was always a fun, not fun, but...
1: (laughs) Oh, no, I know exactly what you mean. Now, I know that there were a couple of neighbors that told police they had heard the blast. Was your grandpa one of them?
3: No, he never said anything about a blast. I remember they said they saw a bright light and a flash, and they didn't really think anything of it. There's a lot of hunters in the area. There's a lot of other things going on in the forest area. So I don't think it really alarmed anybody until they went back and saw the damage.
1: Right. So how much of the story did you know in terms of who the victim was and who was accused of killing him? Did you know any of those details?
3: I didn't. I was so
1: amazed because I have
3: kind of tried to look back on that trail and the closest that I could find was kind of similar, that I thought it was a mafia-related Killing, But what confused me is the mafia typically doesn't do such dramatic means to off somebody. It's usually more of a silent secret thing. But when I started looking, I saw that John Scalish was the head of the Cleveland Mafia at the time. And he had branches from New York to Chicago to Las Vegas, I mean, all over the country. So I thought, well, maybe it did have a connection. But beyond that, I didn't really know half of the story. It's crazy.
1: So does it make sense that something like that would have happened in that area of Wyandotte County? Was that a, a you know, a route that mobsters would have been taking and, and using for themselves?
3: That's what I was always told. My other grandfather was really big into history. And it, one of the things that always fascinated him was the mafia. And growing up, he had always told us that Forrest was a pass through for the mafia heading to Chicago which is why I kind of tied it back to Scalish is because he had those connections in Chicago. But there was always the story that Forrest was kind of the stopping point between Cleveland and Chicago for the mob to travel through.
1: So the theory of the police is these three guys, Lauer, Haas, Horry, and Stone, the victim, uh, mm-hmm. become new associates. They're going to decide to do this new car dealership where they're selling stolen cars. And Laura Haas and Horry are buddies. They've spent time at the penitentiary together. And at some point, they're starting to get worried that maybe Stone isn't as loyal or trustworthy as they would like him to be, and that he might crack under the pressure of this charge that Laura Haas is facing involving a stolen car the year before. You know, if you've got stolen cars on your record and then all of a sudden you open a car dealership, police might be taking a closer look to make sure you're legitimate. And maybe in that framework, stone would crack and reveal who they are and what they're doing. And they just didn't trust them enough. Does that sound like a pretty good theory to you?
3: I think it is because by using Stone, here was somebody they were using that had just a check fraud on his record. So there was nothing really to flag authorities. I think they were kind of streaming everything underneath him to kind of keep everything covered because it's not going to raise any flags to see him having a dealership. Um, it makes you wonder though, if he wasn't wanting if he wasn't getting over his head and wanting to get out of it. Or if he started questioning things more, it definitely makes you wonder if there was more going on there. Another thing that I saw was that the Cleveland mob was not taking new members because they didn't want to share their illegal profits with new members. So maybe Stone wanted to get more involved and was pushing for that. I mean, it's hard to say, but I, I don't know. It goes either way.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I like your point of maybe him kind of being a dupe, you know, them saying, you know, we need somebody to front this who doesn't have a record. They might have even gotten angry at him for that bad check charge, thinking, boy, we had a guy who wasn't in the system at all, and then just three months earlier, okay, now he's in the system, and Mm -hmm. um, oh, and then the argument that they were having, like Lara Haas was building you know, the shanty on the uh, lot they were going to use, and he wanted paid for it. (laughs) I can imagine Stone saying, wait a minute, we're partners. Why would I pay you for it, you know? Yeah. So it sounds like maybe they just were not getting along at all.
3: Something definitely happened, and obviously by how they disposed of him and the fingerprints missing, somebody, whether it was them or someone affiliated with them, went through great measures to try to hide his identity and did not plan on him being able to be
1: identified. In the end, they seemed like a couple of incompetents. I mean, they were trying to destroy the evidence on the car, but they left a serial number behind. Mm-hmm. They were trying to cut off the fingerprints, but they didn't cut off the fingers, and the fingerprints were still there. Yeah. And, you know, it only took police four days to flag these guys. Yeah. You know,
3: And this is in the 50s when everything was that much slower by today's standards. Exactly. So they're not able to run it through a quick database. They were able to come up pretty quick with things that were going on.
1: I am so impressed with the detective work done on this case.
3: It was crazy. The gentleman that was the um, police detective at the time he actually had a later murder case as well that made national headline news. So for a really small, small community, they had two really big stories, relatively short time of each other, that made national headline news. So they did pretty well.
1: Yeah. For, you know, Wyandotte, I mean, I'm I'm not that familiar with it. I drive through it, you know, on the way out of the state or on the way to Cedar Point. But uh-huh. is it, is it? Is the whole county pretty rural, I mean, low population?
3: It pretty pretty much is. It's a pretty good pass-through for things, and I think that's what happened in this case. It was a pass-through. It was a convenient place to stop. It wasn't really well. There's not that many people around to say, like, oh, this is really funny and strange and better kind of
1: watch on this. Yeah, my I think one of my I think my point is uh, rural communities often have, you know, dedicated law enforcement officials, but people without the day-to-day experience of very dramatic crime. Yes. And so, you know, even more impressive is the idea that this case might have been solved in ma- in a matter of 4 days you know, mm-hmm. in a rural community.
3: Yes, absolutely. I agree.
1: But so it may have been solved, but then again, it wasn't. It is still a mystery because they could never get the evidence. I mean, is there, are we confident that that's what happened or is there another option?
3: I think that's definitely what happened. I think that having the overhead of the Cleve, I could not find a direct connection between Lower House and is it hurry? Hooray?
1: <laughs> I've been calling them Hooray.
3: <laughs> okay. Lower House and Horay. Right, there's no direct connection to the Cleveland mafia, but it's pretty well assumed at this point that they had those connections. And because of that, they had judges, they had political figures, they had family members in some cases protecting them from being able to charge them outright with things. But I think it's pretty safe to say that they're definitely the ones that were involved and did it.
1: Uh, What did they think that explosion was going to do? If they thought that they had taken off his fingerprints, the explosion obviously wasn't going to completely incinerate the body. I I don't know what they thought that explosion was supposed to do.
3: I don't know, but they must have used a lot of dynamite because the hole in the ground was 100 feet from the leg. The second leg was 100 feet from the first and 200 feet from the hole. So like 200 feet is comparable to the length of the Lincoln Memorial. So it's a massive distance and leaves were blown off up to 2 up to 20 feet high. So that had to be a pretty big explosion. I'm su- really surprised they were able to recover any body parts from that. All right. We were always told they shoved it in, the dynamite in his mouth and lit it in his mouth. There's obviously no way to tell.
1: Well, I don't think that could have happened because they did recover his head.
3: Well, it makes it way more dramatic.
1: It does. <laughs> well, they said that his head, the force, had flattened his head to where it was only That's three right. inches thick. So there's some drama.
3: <laughs> it's yeah. pretty dramatic. And I don't know if it's directly connected or not but my other grandfather had always, told, had always told the story of the goose carved on the tree that supposedly, like I said, forest was a pass-through for the Cleveland mob.
1: That's the nearest village to the site where this dynamite bombing yes. took place.
3: correct, the town. <laughs> Got it. The town next to the forest is called Forest, just to help make it a little bit more <laughs> confusing there. Got
1: it. <laughs> so now what did your grandpa say?
3: There was a story growing up, and my dad had actually seen it, that there was a goose carved on a tree in the middle of a woods. And the story was that the mob had come through. They had a bunch of gold, and they buried it and didn't want anybody else to find it. So in order for them to know where it was located, they carved a goose on a tree with the goose looking over his shoulder. And my grandpa said that they could never figure out if the goose was looking over his shoulder to see if someone was following them or looking back over his shoulder at the treasure. And apparently tons of people over the years have tried to find this hidden gold and no one has found it. But there is a tree out in the middle of the woods with this goose carved on it, supposedly looking over the treasure.
1: Now your grandpa saw that tree with the goose. Did you ever see it?
3: I did not. He um, passed away before we had a chance to go out and really look. But my dad went with him. He would take my dad out and show him the goose and would treasure hunt for it and stuff.
1: Oh, my gosh. Is it still around?
3: Supposedly. My dad doesn't remember kind of how it goes with family stories and folklore and that. You never exactly remember where, but he's adamant. He remembers my grandpa taking him out there and seeing the carved goose and that there was gold buried out there.
1: That's, that's a cool story. You must have fun. You you do walks. Is that what your your history tours are? They like walks through the community, or?
3: Yes, we do them as fundraisers. Uh, We'll go to different town, nearby towns, and we'll kind of look up the different unique stories. I'll pull old newspaper articles and things of that nature, and tell them on the walk about their own town. And a lot of the stories, it's one of those things. Truth is a lot of times stranger than the fiction
1: absolutely how fun i've done a couple tours like that and and they are great fun well ashley thank you so much for joining us tonight hopefully we'll have you back for another mystery
3: thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it and hope you guys stay safe and healthy
1: oh you as well
0: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Drifting Thing is the name used by musical artist Stephen Wittkogel from Hubbard, Ohio. Stephen explained his inspiration for that song that we're featuring tonight, When It's Over. He wrote inspiration for the song actually came from an episode of Ghost Adventure. A mother was trying to reach out to her son's spirit after tragically he committed suicide. She claimed his ghost was in the house communicating with her. The episode struck a chord with me. Literally, and I began to write the song from my perspective if I was the ghost trying to reach to my wife. However, music is subject, so I hope people take away something that they need from the song. As with all musical artists these days, the pandemic has hit hard and it's difficult to make plans. But best case scenario, Drifting Thing will release a split EP in late summer. Meanwhile... Follow him on Facebook, Spotify, YouTube, or Bandcamp. At the start of the podcast, we played a clip of When It's Over by Drifting Thing. Here's the rest of that song. Enjoy, and we'll see you here back next week for another episode of Nothing Ohio Mysteries.
2: But a ghost Drift through these halls You never noticed That I was gone Toss and turn at night alone in this hole. I wait around for you to call and tell me it's so. Nothing but a ghost Trapped in these halls You always felt like You were never alone I can't hold you at night That's my biggest regret Terms with it, just tell me it's all right. The thing I've done, just tell me it's over, sleep until you see the morning sun. Bye.